We've been going through the gospel according to Mark as a sermon series uh, over these past months, and we are up to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 9 through 13, and I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Mark 13, verses 9 through 13, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Jesus says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from where? The mouth of our God. Let's pray and ask His blessing on His word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, even as Rob just prayed, we thank You that You've given us Your word. We thank You that You have given us truth, that we don't have to grope around like we're in the dark trying to figure out who You are, Your ways in this world, uh, the way of life through faith in Christ and Your gospel and how You would have us to live and what we are to believe and how we are to, to live, the things we are to do. We ask that you would once again uh, work in us this morning by your Holy Spirit, that you would move in us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Uh, Make us grow in our most holy faith, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in our study through the gospel according to Mark, uh, this week and into this week, we've uh, come to to Mark chapter 13. It's often referred to as the Olivet Discourse because he taught it where? On the Mount of Olives, across from the temple. And uh, this part of, of Christ's teaching has to do primarily with what we call eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, or the things that were and are to come. Um, we noted last week, uh, if you were here, that there's a lot of disagreement. Of all the things in, in the New Testament, in all the things in the Gospels that Christ our Lord teaches and has taught, uh, there's a lot of disagreement uh, between scholars and pastors and theologians over this particular section. Uh, in Mark, it's chapter 13. It's also found in parallel passages in Matthew's Gospel and Luke as well. This Olivet Discourse, in many ways, uh, people have said it's the most difficult section of the New Testament to interpret and to understand. Now, it's kind of one of those things, you know, if we don't really advertise sermon series around here, uh, we don't put ads in the paper saying, you know, this month we're going to talk about the end times. You know, we might see a spike in attendance if that were the case. Uh, you know, that seems to be one of those topics that we often just have a curiosity about. We just want to know, uh, you know, what, what's going to happen at the time of the end. Um, not on top of that, you know, it's one of those difficult passages that sometimes I wonder if the uptick in attendance on those kinds of topics is because people just want to know or if they just want to watch the pastor squirm because we're not sure what to say about, about the text. Well, you know, add to that the tendency among many of us to treat the doctrines of eschatology, the, the whole topic, as, uh, I don't know what else to call it, kind of like holy trivia, you know, or, or even holy gossip. You know, we just want to know the inside scoop that other people are ignorant of. We kind of take pride in that kind of a thing. Or, you know, sometimes we just like to have knowledge for knowledge's sake. 
Well, there's really nothing in Scripture, the truth of Scripture, that's given to us for that purpose. It's never really given to us for the purpose of just knowing. Uh, it's good to know what Scripture says, but it's not just there that we might fill our heads with content and be puffed up in our knowledge. The things that are in Scripture are there, that, especially this, really, even this, uh, is, it's there as vital doctrine for our present faith in life. That's what it's there for. That's what the book of Revelation is there for. It's not just there that we might know what other people don't don't know or that we might have our curiosity or our pride satisfied. And so when we when we approach passages like this, this whole chapter really, or the book of Revelation, or pick a pick a prophetic passage that we think of when you talk about the end times and things like that. When we when we when we treat those passages as if it's there just for our curiosity's sake and not for our present faith in life, we're not going to really understand anything we're reading rightly. We might fill our heads with knowledge, but we're really not going to be knowing things the way that we ought to know. Now, in this section, this small section that we're looking at of the Olivet Discourse, what is Jesus doing here? He's preparing his disciples for what's to come. To them, primarily. There's application to us, but primarily the first thing in the text it deals with what they were going to have to endure for the sake of the name of Christ. In verse 9, what does he say? Be on your guard. He wants the disciples, and secondarily us as well, to be ready, to be prepared, to be on our guard. And he tells them that they're to be on their guard. Why? One day they were going to be delivered over to councils, even the Sanhedrin. The word councils there is the plural of Sanhedrin. It's a very Jewish term. He said they would be, quote, verse 9 again, beaten in synagogues. Kind of hard to picture that in your head. Like, it's, it's in a sense, it's like saying, you're going to be beaten up in church. I hope nobody here has ever seen a fist fight in a church. I suppose it's happened, but that they were going to be beaten, punished physically in synagogues. He says they'd be made, quote, to stand before governors and kings for Christ's sake to bear witness before them about Christ, verse 9. Now, these things were very much literally fulfilled in the book of Acts. We preached through Acts maybe a few couple years ago now. Everything he says here in this part of the, of the chapter happened to the apostles in the book of Acts. One commentator goes so far as to say the following about what we read in these verses. He says, Quote, very short to the point, the book of Acts is a commentary on these verses. If you read through Acts, keep this passage in the back of your head, and you'll see these exact things happening throughout the pages of Luke's writing there in the book of Acts. Now, that that's, might be a little bit of an overstatement. The whole book of Acts isn't about these verses, but it's not an overstatement by by much. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 talks about the, the disciples being arrested and made to stand before councils. Acts 4, verses 1 through 4, it says, And as they were speaking, these are the apostles, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they literally put them in jail. Armed men came and grabbed them and put them in jail. And it says, But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
What does, what does Paul say later on in one of his epistles that the that he could be chained, but the gospel's not chained. You can chain the preacher, but you can't chain the word of God. And what happens? They they arrest him. Satan puts it in their hearts to arrest the apostles, to stick them in, in a jail cell somewhere. But what what still happens when the, when the word of God is preached? 5,000 men and women and children come to faith in Christ anyway. Now, this is, this is not the only time in the book of Acts. If you've read through the book of Acts, I trust most of you have, you'll know that this happens more than once. In fact, in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 5, they're arrested again. So it's, it's, it's like a regular thing. Imagine if your pastor came, you know, if you, let's say that, hopefully this doesn't happen anytime soon, but, uh, you, we have a search committee for a new pastor, right? Don't fire the old one, but, but we're looking for a new pastor and he, you know, you get the resume, all this stuff. Uh, and you're looking at the resume and it says, you know, been in jail five or six times. And you're probably, your eyebrows are going to, you know, perk up just a little bit and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, we just want to know you have a, a, a divinity degree from a reputable seminary that you keep your nose clean. And he says, oh, I've been arrested for preaching the gospel. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. That's what Paul says later on. Well, in Acts 5, verses 40 to 42, it mentions, you know, that kind of things get ratcheted up. They get arrested. The first time they got arrested and threatened. Don't you preach in the name of Christ? And what do they do? Sorry, no can do. And they preach again? Well, they get arrested again. It says in Acts 5, 40 to 42, it says, When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So first they threatened, then they actually assault them. Then they left the presence of the council, the apostles did, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I don't know about you, but rejoicing isn't the first thing I would think about if I was getting beaten for the name of Christ. But that's what they did. It says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Beatings didn't stop the gospel from going forth. They were arrested. They were beaten. Now, beaten there is the same Greek word that's here in Mark 13, verse 9. And it, it may be the same word that's used for being scourged. Scourged is a little bit more than being, you know, just punched or, or kicked. Uh, this wasn't a slap on the wrist. This may have actually been the 39 lashes or what they say, the 40 minus 1. There was a limit uh, in the Old Testament in the law about how much someone could be beaten as a punishment. And so what they did was they, they put a fence around the law, so to speak, or a hedge around the law. The limit was 40. So what did they do? Well, they gave you 39 to make sure they didn't accidentally go over if, so if 39 sounds like a random number, it really isn't. They, they were trying in their own weird way to kind of make sure they didn't transgress God's law. And so they gave 39 rather than 40. So they may have been you know, whipped and scourged with 39 lashes, uh, and they rejoiced at it. Because what did, they, what did they see it as? They saw themselves as sharing in, in some way, the sufferings of Christ. Paul himself talks about that in one of his... Epistles. Now, the Apostle Paul, later on in the book of Acts, endured much the same thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul was kind of boasting about his ministerial qualifications, right? And he could have said, hey, I had a vision of Christ, Christ himself, the risen Lord, stopped me on the road to Damascus. He didn't go there right away. Uh, he talks about his sufferings as his qualifications. And in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 25, listen to what he says. He says, that he had done, quote, far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, same word, beatings, and often near death, 
And then he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Paul suffered for preaching the gospel everywhere around the world. Paul uh, was beaten or scourged with 39 lashes five times. You know, when you think about uh, Paul, he had many scars for his trouble. His scars were his trophies, in a sense, of his ministry, his labors and ministry. You know, Paul, we just sang a hymn a little while ago in the service, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord. Well, Paul wasn't ashamed to own his Lord, even at the cost of, of bodily harm and, and suffering. Well, not only that, but the apostles, just as Christ says in our passage here, were also made to stand before governors and kings for his sake. Literally, Acts 12, verses 1 to 4, it says, About that time, Herod the king uh, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, that's Peter, He put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. You know, you had to observe the rules of the Passover, right? If you're going to kill Peter, you've got to do it decently and in good order, uh, right? He was a Presbyterian king. Uh, he, He brought him out. Well, later on in the book of Acts, similar things happened to the apostle Paul as well. He was arrested in the temple in Jerusalem in Acts 21. Remember, people were telling him, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things going to happen. A, a prophet came and bound his hands, his own hands. This is what's going to happen to the guy who's wearing this belt. And it was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was, was arrested in the temple in Jerusalem in Acts 21. He was made to stand before the council, probably the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 22. Early on into chapter 23, he was made to stand before Felix, the governor of Caesarea, in that same chapter where he bore witness before him, talked to him about Christ in Acts 23 and 24. So it's, it's like a do-over. Paul's doing the same things that Christ described here to his apostles, uh, the disciples. Paul went through the same thing. As if that weren't enough, Paul also appeared before Felix's successor as governor. One imprisonment, two governors. Paul lasted through the end of the, of the term of Felix and Festus, his his uh, successor in Acts 25, and then he was made to appear before a king, King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 25. And then if you know the book of Acts, what does Paul do before Agrippa? He appeals to Caesar himself. And so Paul got a free ride to Rome to preach the gospel in Rome under prison and under house arrest. He appeared before kings. And we believe he appeared before Caesar as well. And he was finally one day actually martyred, beheaded under Caesar Nero around A.D. 63. Now in all all these instances, the apostles faithfully bore witness, just as Jesus said they would do before councils, governors, and kings for the sake of the name of Christ. And what is Jesus doing here in our text? He's preparing them beforehand to do just that. He's preparing them ahead of time for what was going to happen to them. Now, verse 10 of our of our text this morning says, kind of right in the middle, it almost sticks out like a sore thumb or like a light in a dark place. He says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
And you could say that in a sense, it's kind of the central point of our text, of this part of the of the Olivet Discourse. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, in, in one sense, in a, in a very large sense, this is yet to be accomplished. Has, has the gospel been proclaimed to everyone? No. That's why we still have foreign missions. Everyone in, the, in every place around the globe has not yet heard the gospel of Christ. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, still applies. Foreign missions are still a vital part of Christ's mission uh, for his church on this earth. We must support missions. Missions are not an extra. Missions are not something we add to our budget just in case we have something left over. They're every bit as important as preaching the gospel here in our town of, of Ramona as well. But in another sense, you could say, biblically, that the preaching of the gospel has gone out to all the nations. It has gone out to the nations already. It's come to pass, and really it came to pass very early in the church's history. The scripture says so. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, the Apostle Paul says this. This is kind of his opening greeting, right? Colossians 1, 3 through 6. He says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Talks about faith, hope, and love all in the opening greeting. And he says, of this, that's the gospel, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, here it is, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. In Paul's day, Paul could say that, as, also, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel in Paul's day had gone out in the whole world and was bearing fruit and increasing. In a sense, this is also the message of the book of Acts. We went through the book of Acts a little while, a little while back, maybe a couple years ago. You could say that in the book of Acts, the gospel spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and the ends of the earth, and the ends of the earth being Rome at that time, represents the fulfilling of Christ's words here and also in Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8, if you ever read the book of Acts, Acts 1 verse 8 gives you the entire outline of the book. One little verse tells you exactly what the point of the book is going to be. Jesus tells the disciples there, similar to here, he's preparing them. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. To the end of the earth. Now, Rome in in that day, in the first century, was kind of the end of the inhabited earth. That's what people, when you thought of, when you were in Jerusalem and you thought of as far as you could go, where did you think of? The outskirts of Rome. Rome's boundaries marked, in a lot of ways, the edge of the civilized world. That's why they talked about when, when, when the German hordes came and fought against them, what did they call them? The barbarians. Uncivilized barbarians is what they would have referred to them as. The gospel spread all that way from Jerusalem to Rome uh, through the apostles. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that the gospel could go with you know twelve or thirteen un, well Paul was learned, but most of them were unlearned men. It went from Jerusalem all the way in the space of less than gener- one generation, you know, twenty-five years, give or take, is about how long it took for that to happen, despite severe persecutions and martyrdom. 
without any of the technological advances that we so take for granted in our day when it comes to travel and communication. They didn't have airplanes. They didn't have cars. They didn't have fast boats. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have satellites. The things that we think are so crucial, the gospel going out with real power, they had none of those things, yet the gospel was like a wildfire going throughout the world in their day. How is that possible? Have you ever asked yourself that? Have you ever read the book of Acts, closed your Bible, and looked at yourself and said, no way, no way that happened. There's no way that could have possibly happened. In our day, maybe, because we don't think of the power of the Holy Spirit at work. We think of, of our own things. We think of technology and the things that we come up with on our own. The reason it's possible, the reason that it happened, is because the book of Acts, what do we often call the book of Acts? If you open your Bible and look at the first, you know, the title page, it often says the Acts of the Apostles, right? And that's not wrong, although that title's not part of the text. You know, Luke didn't write down the title, the Acts of the Apostles. Who, whose Acts is the book of Acts really about? You ever wondered that? Now, on the human side, it's the Apostles, But who's really doing the acting and the doing and the teaching in the book of Acts? It's really the acts of the risen, ascended, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. That's really ultimately what the book is about. That's the only reason Acts makes any sense. Paul wasn't super apostle. Peter wasn't super apostle. They didn't have inherent power in them on their own to do these things and make the gospel bear all this fruit and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. The book of Acts is really the story of the Lord Jesus Christ building his church in the gates of hell, proving powerless to prevail against it, as Jesus said back in Matthew 16. And Luke, Luke himself, the writer of Acts, gives us a hint. I know this feels more like a study in Acts than it does Mark, right? Uh, in the very first verse of, of the book of Acts, this is what he writes, Acts 1.1. Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the first book he's talking about? The Gospel according to Luke. So he's saying to us, saying to Theophilus, Hey Theophilus, the first book I wrote, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, was about all that Jesus... Now if you and I were writing that, we would have said, the first book I wrote, O Theophilus, was about all that Jesus did and taught. It's not what he says, is it? He said, it's all about what Jesus, quote, began to do and teach. Now, it's an elliptical statement, right? There's a dot, dot, dot that he doesn't totally fill in for us. What's he implying about the book of Acts? What is the book of Acts related to the Gospel of Luke, the second volume, so to speak, about? Jesus began to do and teach in Luke. Here's Jesus continuing to do and teach in the book of Acts. The risen and ascended and reigning Christ at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, is the only explanation for what happens in the book of Acts. He's the only reason that the gospel can go from 12 uneducated Galilean redneck fishermen in Jerusalem and spread in 25 years or so all the way to Rome to the point where Paul can talk about members of Caesar's household greeting you in one of his letters. It's pretty amazing to think about. Luke's implying that the book of Acts is about, we're supposed to understand it as the continuing doings and teachings of Christ. How? Through his word and through his spirit working through his word in his church, specifically in the apostles in that day. Now, not only were the disciples to bear witness for Christ and preach the gospel to all nations in our text in the face of hardships and persecutions, 
But he even tells them they don't have to be anxious beforehand about what they were going to say when they stood before those councils and governors and kings. What does he say in verse 11 of our text? He says, and when they bring you to trial, not if, when, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand. Really, it's like, it's, it's basically don't premeditate. Don't sit there in your cell trying to plan out your three-point sermon and wondering what you're going to do, right? Uh, what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. I wish preaching were that were like that in some ways. I could not spend the whole week studying. I could just, in the hour I'm supposed to give the sermon, maybe some, some pastors seem to do that, right? They walk up the pulpit steps, and they presume that God's going to give them whatever it is to speak, and then the, hour, the sermon goes an hour and a half long, and nobody knows what the pastor is saying. But um, the, very, the very words he says that they are to speak, we're going to be what? Given to them and when? It's funny how God always seems to do this. In that hour. It's like God providing for our needs for our families. We would love it if God gave you daily bread for the whole year ahead of time. Right? We would all love that. He doesn't do that. He gives you, we're even to pray for our daily bread. Well, the disciples, the apostles, were going to be given in the very hour they needed it, the words to say, the grace and the words of, of God's Spirit to speak. And what does he say? The Holy Spirit will be the one speaking through them. Think about the encouragement that must have been for the disciples to hear. They might not have understood it right away, but what an encouragement that would be. Like, I don't know about you, but standing before governors and kings sounds like, even the, the council, the Sanhedrin, sounds very intimidating. But when God says, oh, I've got this, you know, my spirit is going to be the one talking, not you, don't worry about it. God can talk to kings. Kings are nothing to God. Psalm 2 tells you, what does it say? The kings and princes, you know, line themselves together against the Lord and against his Christ. And what is, what is God, the Lord's reaction in Psalm 2? He who sits in the heavens laughs. They're nothing. God, God isn't worried or intimidated by kings or princes and his people were given the encouragement of being told that they would be given the words to say in that hour. Well, the last thing he tells us is a promise to endure, a promise to those who endure in verses 12 to 13, Jesus gives his disciples kind of a, a snapshot of the severity of the hardships and the hatred they would endure for his sake. He says, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hard thing to, to think about. You know, that's the hatred and malice that the seed of the serpent uh, and the children of wrath have for God's children in Christ. It's the way it's been since Genesis 4. It's been, it's been that way. And the Lord would not have us or the apostles to be surprised or, or shocked by this malice as if something strange were happening to them. He wanted them to be prepared for it. He wants us to be prepared for similar things. And at times... Think about this. It's hard to imagine that, but this this unholy hatred even divides families. Some who are called by the name of Christ and baptized in the name of the triune God are, are faced, even in our day, with the hatred and alienation from their earthly families. You, you may know someone, I, I know I do, who lost their family because they came to Christ and were baptized. Their families cut them off as if they're dead. You know, the saying, so-and-so is dead to me. That People do that. They, they don't want nothing to do with their, with their family members who have come to Christ at times. That still 
happens. The Apostle John in 1 John 3.12 says that Cain, Cain who struck and killed his brother Abel, quote, was of the evil one and murdered his brother. He's pointing back to Genesis 3.15 there, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman at war. Well, things haven't really changed much since then. There's still a war going on between the seed of the serpent and the offspring of the woman in Christ. Well, our Lord also in Matthew 10, verses 34 to 39, says something similar. He says, Do not think I have come, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Seems like a strange thing for Jesus to say. He says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Why? For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's not saying don't love your family. He's not saying don't love your your children or children don't love your parents. He's saying don't love them more than you love Christ. You know, what does Genesis say about marriage? You know, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and the old King James says what? Cleave, cling to like glue, you know, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In other words, there's there becomes a new priority for the husband, that his mother and father are no longer number one in his life. His wife takes that place. You know, if 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 in-laws want to do battle with the husband for preeminence for his wife, who's supposed to win? His wife is his new priority. doesn't mean he doesn't love his parents. It means there's, there's a new order in town. Well, in the same way, uh, those of us who know Christ, we love Christ more than all others. We love him more than even our flesh and blood. Lastly, in verse 13 of our text, Jesus adds, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, that may sound like a very difficult thing to say. That may sound like a tall order. That may maybe you you were reading that and you said, "Wow, you know everything else seems hard enough." And then you add that in, it sounds like a uh, uh, it almost sounds threatening in some ways when you read it. Like if you don't endure, like flip it around. If you don't endure, what's going to happen? You really better endure. Is kind of the way it comes. That's how I read it sometimes. It sounds like you know wagging the finger and, and with a threat, but it's really given as a promise. It's really given as a promise. It's given as an encouragement to God's redeemed people that we might endure and persevere. J.C. Ryle writes the following. He says, let us gather comfort from these comfortable promises for all true-hearted servants of Christ. Persecuted, vexed, and mocked as they are now, they shall find at length that they are on the victorious side. Beset, perplexed, tried as they sometimes are, they shall never find themselves entirely forsaken. Though cast down, they shall not be destroyed. Let them possess their souls in patience. The end of all they they see going on around them is certain, fixed, and sure. The kingdoms of this world shall yet become the kingdoms of their God and of his Christ. And when the scoffers and ungodly who so often insulted them are put to shame, believers shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. He borrows a lot of Paul's phrases and words. You can probably pick that up when I was reading it. That's, that's, that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is trying to encourage the apostles to endure to the end, that they'll, they'll see the way things really are. One day they will see 
all the wrongs righted. They'll see that they did the right thing by preaching the gospel in the face of all that opposition and persecution. Now, it has to be said, I think, when you read a lot of this chapter, including our passages this morning, that these things were spoken first and primarily for the sake of the apostles. It applied to them primarily. It applied to them first and foremost. And as we've seen from the book of Acts, those things that Jesus spoke about in our text concerning the apostles literally happened to them in the earliest years of the church's history after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, uh, I have to say, are probably not going to be beaten in synagogues. It's possible. I don't think we, any of us in this room can really expect that to happen. I very much doubt that anyone in this room, although if you do, uh, God bless you, is going to stand before kings or governors to bear witness for Christ. These things were spoken to the apostles first and foremost. And the Lord, all these things that the Lord had to say throughout this chapter of Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, the things he talks about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, much of this chapter deals with that great event that we don't really appreciate or understand the, the gravity of and the significance of it. I hope in the weeks to come we'll, we'll get a little, at least a little bit of a hint of what that uh, was for and what that means. But those things were to prepare the disciples for what was going to come in their lifetime, many of them. So they would understand ahead of time, when they saw it, this wasn't some accident. That this was all part of God's plan. But you and I, we too must be willing to bear witness for our Lord, even in the face of possible persecution. The days of the persecution of God's people, even martyrdom, are not some long past thing that we read about in church history books. It's not something that used to happen a lot in the Bible times and don't happen at all anymore Today, you know, it's been said, and I think they're right, I don't know who first said this, but it's been said that there have been more Christians, more believers in Christ, martyred for the name of Christ in the last hundred years than all the centuries of church history piled up together before it. It's not just the first century when Christians were being martyred. It's not just Nero and Rome that did such things. These things happen now. These things happen in our day as well. In many ways, the history of the church, just like the book of Acts is the history of our Lord building his church and advancing his gospel in the face of all kinds of obstacles and persecution. We too, you and I who are baptized and called by the name of the triune God uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ must still preach the gospel to all the nations. Verse 10 still applies. The Great Commission still applies. We must take part in bearing witness for Jesus Christ and hold forth the word of life to a dying world. There's still a dying world out there full of sinners that need to hear the good news of Christ. That's still our job. If we're not doing that, we have no reason to exist as a church. And we too must also, as Jesus says in the last verse, endure to the end. You and I must endure to the end. Now, frankly, we don't seem to endure very much of, of the persecutions like they endured, and that's a good thing. I don't mind that personally myself. But if you're in Christ... That's exactly what you will do. You will endure to the end. How? By by your own strength? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Hey guys, good luck. Hang on. Hang on if you can. Most of you probably won't. Is that what he's saying? No. No, you will you will persevere to the end. You will endure to the end and why? Because God finishes what God starts. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, why is that? 
Is it because you're smarter than somebody else? You might be smarter than somebody else, but is that why you believe? Do people that are dead in their sins and trespasses on their own magically, by their own strength, turn to Christ and believe in him? No. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit bringing a dead sinner to life. Philippians 1 verse 6, it's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Paul says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will do what? Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you came to faith in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, who did that? You believe, but why did you believe? God, God did that. God began that good work in you. And who's going to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus? Same person, God. God starts it, God finishes it. That's what, that was Paul's confidence. He was confident that he who had begun a good work in them and bringing them to faith and repentance would bring that work to completion all the way until the day of Christ. He finishes what he starts. What does Paul say in Romans 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 39. And in that passage he says, not death itself, not, it's funny to our ears, he says not even rulers. Even as the apostles had to do, Paul knew firsthand, rulers could not separate you from Christ. Angels, demons cannot separate you from Christ. He lastly says, nothing else in all creation, verse 39. Nothing. Think about it, nothing else in all creation. There's God, Genesis 1, in the beginning God, and there's creation. What's Paul saying? Nothing over here can ever rip you out of Christ's grasp. Why? Because God has you in Christ, and God will keep you by the power of faith. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.37 that we are what? More than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning. Uh, we give you praise that, that your word is so sure and true that all these things that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, told to his, to his apostles, that they, these things came to pass, that he prepared them beforehand, that they did uh, come to experience all these things. They did bear witness for his sake and for his name in front of councils, in front of governors and rulers, in front of kings, even in front of Caesars, that they preached the King of kings and Lord of lords, to, and to anyone and everyone, and that you made your word to go forth and bear fruit. And thousands upon thousands, even countless numbers of sinners, were brought to faith in Christ and salvation and life in his name. We give you praise that this witness, that, that you're even commanding us to be involved with in our day, although none of us are apostles, yet we still are called as your people to bear witness for the sake and the name of Christ. And we give you praise that, that your gospel is bearing fruit, not just in the first century, not just in the pages of the book of Acts, but your gospel is bearing fruit now, here and now, in our day, in our age, in our town, even in our homes, only for one reason, and that is because your Lord Jesus Christ, you, Lord, are seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and you are ruling all things for the sake of your church, that you, by the work of your Spirit, through your word, are making your word to bear fruit, in the salvation of an untold number of, of, of people. That is, Revelation says, one day we will see a crowd that no man can number of the redeemed. We will see one day and give you praise forever for your great grace in saving so many sinners by the work uh, of your gospel and the work of your spirit. And we ask that you would work in us, uh, this little church, that you would use us to bear witness for the sake of Christ, 
for those whom you put in front of us, whether it be family members, co-workers, friends, neighbors, whoever it may be. Uh, work in us, give us grace to preach your gospel clearly and boldly, that we might bear witness for Christ. We pray that you would give us grace to do so, enduring in hope and expecting and, and living to see one day the great harvest that you come to cause through it. And we pray that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, has not yet turned from their sin to faith in Christ and have life in his name, that you would do that even now, that you might open their eyes, give them grace to see their sin, to see to see the Savior Christ, their need for him, that they might look to him and have life in his name, that you might receive all the glory. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.